You can open up to James chapter 2 this morning. That's where we're going to be. And as we look at that text, I thought it would be good to remind you this morning of our goal in the study of the book of James. Um, if you've been here at Woodhaven for any amount of time, even just a couple weeks, you understand that what the way we preach through and study the Bible is we go rather slowly. Um, I think we're going to be in the book of James up until October or, or thereabouts. Um, we were in the Gospel of Mark for over a year, I think, um, back in 2017, 2018. So we do go slowly through the Bible, and, and there are wonderful advantages to that. Um, you, you see the, the Word of God in great detail, and you're able to understand much better exactly what the biblical author and the Holy Spirit through the biblical author is saying. Uh, but there, there is at least one disadvantage to going so slowly through the Bible. Uh, through a particular book of the Bible. The disadvantage is that often you get so wrapped up in the details and moving so slowly through the text that you sort of forget the overall picture of the book you're studying. And so you start to forget what the book of James is actually about and what the whole purpose of the book is. And so as we get going this morning, I thought it would be a good chance to remind you of what we're doing in the book of James. The title for our series in James is meant to to sort of keep that big picture in front of you week after week. And the title is Wisdom for Wholeness. And that's W-H-O-L-E, wholeness, right? It's, it's wisdom for wholeness. And so I want to split that into two parts and explain to you what each of those mean and then sort of put them back together. So the first, of all, first part of that is let's talk about wisdom. We typically think of wisdom and especially wisdom in the Bible as something that is confined to the Old Testament. There are wisdom books and you know it's sort of a Jewish Old Testament thing to think about wisdom and so Proverbs and Ecclesiastes are wisdom books and that's where the Bible teaches about wisdom. And that's certainly true and you do have texts that are devoted to wisdom but I would say that the whole of Scripture is instructing us in God's wisdom and in the New Testament, the book of James is a wonderful example of a specifically wisdom-oriented book. James is teaching us how to have skill for living, how to live life well. He wants us to know how to live according to God's design for us as human beings. We were made to live in a certain way. That's wise living. And James is saying this is what that looks like. And of course, you only live in wisdom as you live according to the redemptive gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's what James is instructing us in when it comes to wisdom. Living according to the gospel of Christ and how we were designed. But wisdom is not an end goal in and of itself. Wisdom is directing us somewhere in our character, in who we are. And that's why we have the second part of our title, wisdom for or toward wholeness. To be whole is to be complete. Now I'm sure I use sports illustrations far too much, but that's sort of where I have lived my life in the sports world. And so if you were describing a basketball player, you would want to say he was a basketball player that was good at everything, rebounding, shooting, 
defense passing, you would say this guy is the total package on the basketball court. He is a complete player. He's good at every skill that it takes to play basketball. He's not a specialist. He's not just a three-point shooter, or he's not just a defensive specialist. This guy is the complete package, right? He's whole as a basketball player. And that's exactly the idea of the book of James. James wants us to be complete Christians, to develop our character in all of these different areas. And so James would say, I want you to be skilled in your response to trials. I want you to be whole in your ability to handle temptation. I want you to be complete in the way that you treat poor people and those who are marginalized. And so as you develop all of these different areas, you become a mature and a complete and a whole Christian. And so James's burden is that we would grow in Christ's likeness and we would grow to be complete believers and not just specialists. And so last week we began, with that background in mind, we began discussing chapter 2 in the book of James. And this topic that James is hitting at, partiality, I mentioned last week, we, have a, we can be tempted, we have a tendency to view this as sort of unimportant. This is almost like a lull in the book of James, you know, there's really exciting stuff coming up next at the end of chapter 2 where we talk about faith and works, that's where everybody's interested in the book of James. You know, there's been really interesting stuff in chapter 1, but this is sort of like a lull in the argument of the book. And James is obviously not thinking that way as he presents this topic of partiality. This is not unimportant. It's not something that's just applicable to someone else or to people in a different time period. Partiality or favoritism or the negative side of that discrimination is a subtle sin. And it certainly can splinter our walk with Christ, and it can bring great damage to the unity of the body of Christ. And often it's something we don't notice about the way we're handling other people and the way we're treating other people. And so last week we started studying this passage, and here's the theme of of what we're going through. Four problems with partiality for those pursuing wisdom in Christ. So if you're pursuing wisdom toward wholeness or for wholeness, and you want to be a complete believer, that's the purpose of the book of James, he would say there are four problems with partiality that are keeping you from growing into a mature believer, and you need to address these issues. And so here's the first three. We'll go through these quickly, and then we'll get to the fourth one, which is where we're going to be today. The first problem is you can't have partiality and true faith. You can't have partiality and true faith. And so To show partiality is to treat someone else differently, either positively or negatively, based on some external criteria. And this can be all sorts of criteria, right? Look at verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. This way of dealing with people, to be partial with people, to treat them differently based on some external criteria, is incompatible with worship of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Why can't you do both of these at the same time? Because of who he is. He's the Lord of glory. And how was he exalted to glory? He was made nothing. 
He was made poor for us. He was despised so that we could be accepted. And so to treat others based on some external criteria in favoritism, and then to say, I'm a true believer in Christ, and I'm, I'm going to act both of these ways, they don't go together. They're incompatible. And they're incompatible because the criteria that we use to judge others when we show favoritism is evil. And that's our second problem. So the second problem is in verses 2 to 4, and it's that you judge, when you show partiality, you judge based on evil criteria. Look at James's example in verses 2 and 3. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet. If you do that, if you show partiality to someone based on his clothing, his wealth, his economic status, or you discriminate against someone based on those criteria, verse 4 explains the problem with that. Verse 4, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? The real issue here is then you have become the judge. You have tried to replace God and his standard for accepting people and for judging people. And when you do that, you've used your own wicked and twisted criteria in order to evaluate people. You exalt some based on your judgment and you belittle others based on your judgment. And because you use your own criteria, this brings us to our next problem, which is in verses 5 to 7, and it's that you ignore God's judgment. You ignore his judgment. How does God deal with us? What is his standard for dealing with you and I? It's pure grace. It's pure mercy and kindness. Look at verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? When we become judges, when we act in partiality, we act in a worldly manner and we ignore God's grace to us. And then we're less likely to show grace to others. And that brings us to our last problem, which we're going to look at this morning in verses 8 through 13. The last problem, the fourth problem with partiality is that you fail to love. It's that simple. And this is maybe the most important problem for us to consider concerning this sin of partiality. It's like James here has pulled everything together from verses 1 to 7 and even further back in the book of James. And he's pulled everything together to make this point that he's going to make here. And he begins this section in verses 8 and 9 with a positive statement of how we are to deal with one another. And then with a negative statement in verse 9 about partiality. Look at verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. So one of the things that people love about the book of James is they love how practical the book of James is. Right? It's very earthy feeling. It's very 
practical instruction for us. It's straightforward and matter of fact. And I think James is certainly doing that here in verse 8. I mean, what he says is, if you really fulfill, and it's almost like, I don't know if you've ever, when you were younger, if you ever had a parent or a teacher tell you, you need to clean up your room or you need to help clean up the classroom and come back to you after you said you're done and said, did you really do your best in cleaning up the classroom or your room? I know you said you did, but then you know in the back of your mind that what you really did was stuff all of your clothes in your closet and close the closet door. And so your teacher or your parent is asking you, did you really do this? It's almost like James is asking that question here. If you really fulfill the royal law, if you really are obedient to this, it's like James knows that we're going to read this passage and we're going to think, I, I really cannot honestly think of any way that I'm showing partiality in my life. But James isn't interested in just an affirmation or an, even a belief in our minds that we're not showing partiality. Keep in mind chapter 1 and verse 22. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. What he's calling us to in verse chapter 2 and verse 8 is he's calling us to actually work out obedience to the royal law in our lives. And you can see in verse 8, he quotes the Old Testament here. He says this in the scripture, right? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So where's he taking that from? He's taking it from Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18. And he's already quoted this passage in this text earlier. And here's what that verse says. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And so as you read this, and as you see James support this royal law here by quoting the Old Testament, you might be tempted to think that what James is saying is that you and I have to obey the entire Old Testament all the details of it. But of course, when you when you think that, or if you think that, you realize that none of us actually do that. None of us keep the details of the Old Testament law. And so my question for us this morning is why? Why don't we do that? I mean, James is supporting, and you see this throughout the New Testament. The New Testament authors support their ethical demands on us, their teaching from the Old Testament. And so why don't we obey the Mosaic law in all of its detail? Maybe you never thought of that before. What gives here? Well, Jesus here, James here, calls this the royal law because of the way Jesus, as the king, fulfills and teaches the Old Testament. And this is so important for you as a believer in how you think about your Old Testament and how you read your Old Testament. You and I function as if we don't have to obey all the details of the Old Testament, right? We don't make sacrifices. We wear garments with more than two types of fabric in them. We don't obey the Old Testament, but the reason we don't do that anymore is because Jesus 
fulfilled the Old Testament. Listen to what Jesus himself says in Matthew chapter 5. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. So he's saying here, I didn't come to destroy the Old Testament law. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. That's Jesus's role here, is to fulfill the Old Testament law. He goes further, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, which those are little parts of the Hebrew alphabet, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So he didn't come to destroy the Old Testament law, but he did come to fulfill it and now we read and interact with the Old Testament law in a different way. So what this is saying is that the Old Testament finds its goal, its culmination in the life, ministry, and teaching of Jesus. And so he is the true interpreter of the law. He has brought it to completion and to fulfillment. And what did Jesus say is true about the Old Testament law. How can we summarize the entire thing? Matthew 22. Someone asks him, Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And I go into all that to say that what James is saying here in verse 8 is very important. When he calls this the royal law, this statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, what he's doing is saying we look back to the Old Testament and now we read it and we apply it in light of Jesus. We never read the Old Testament without going through Jesus and coming from the Old Testament back to us in our time period apart from Jesus. It's always through him to read it and through him to apply it to our lives. He's the true instructor of the law. He's the true king. He's the true fulfillment. The whole thing points forward to him. It's like a window that we look back to see the law and we look back through that window to see our own lives. We always read it through him. And so this royal law, this kingly law, is the summary of the whole thing. And this is how Jesus describes it in John 13. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another another. I mean, this is the summary. All of those particular details in the Old Testament that we don't obey anymore, all of those are pointing to this reality, to the love of the Lord Jesus Christ expressed through his life and ministry and death. And now Jesus is saying, this is how you live. This is the ultimate commandment for how you deal with one another. In light of my coming, this is how you must live. You have to show you're my disciples by the way that you love one another. And this is a dominant theme in the New Testament. We talk about love a lot, but I actually think we underestimate how significant this is in our daily lives. Listen to the Apostle Paul, Romans 13. 
owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So we've heard James, we've heard Jesus, we've heard Paul. How about the Apostle John? John, 1 John chapter 3, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, love us not, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And so this is all over the New Testament by almost every New Testament author in significant places. And the problem for us today is when we read a verse like James 2 and verse 8 and see this as the royal law, the summary of everything that we must do and be in our relationships with one another, the problem is, is the way that love is used in our culture today. This word, this concept, has been so stripped down and sentimentalized and bent out of shape and made to mean whatever we want it to mean or whatever anyone wants it to mean. Love is love. What does that even mean? We've distorted this so badly that you and I, when we read the scriptures and we read this and see that it says, love your neighbor as yourself, we don't even know what that means. Is it, is it warm feelings? Is it affection for someone? Is it just a matter of sort of begrudgingly doing the right thing? Is it pure action? Like, what is this concept of love? What am I being called to here as the ultimate fulfillment of the law and the end game in our lives of the work of Christ is to love one another? We need to go back to the scriptures and let the scriptures dictate how we think about love. Where do we get our concept of love? If, if you're sitting there going, yeah, I think that's right. I'm not sure I could define love. I'm not sure I could describe it. I kind of know what it looks like, but I'm not sure I've got a good concrete grasp on what love to one another looks like. How do we get there? Well, I'm not gonna give you a, an academic definition this morning. But I am going to point you in the right direction to begin to understand what true love for one another looks like. Listen to 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. I'll read it to you. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Here we go. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. 
if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. And so here's what John would say. If you aren't clear in your relationships with your coworker, with your fellow church member, with your spouse, with your children, if you're not clear and we all get muddy in our thinking all the time, what does it look like to love my kids, my wife, my church family, my coworker? What does that look like day in and day out? Go back here. Go back to the love of God expressed for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. A self-sacrificial, initiating, aggressive love that certainly brings action and feeling together. Go back there and learn from that. Let the Spirit work in your heart and shed that, that love abroad so that you are formed into a fully and a truly loving person. And James here makes it clear that partiality is the opposite of that, of love. Look at verse 9. But, right, so verse 8 is the standard. That is what we're called to as believers. That's why I spent so much time there. But verse 9, but if you show partiality, if you show favoritism, if you discriminate, it is not a small matter. It is not insignificant. It is the opposite of love. Two things have happened if you do that. First of all, you are committing sin. See that in verse 9. Sin is the missing of a mark. It's a departure from the standard that God has and that he has set. Sin is anything that comes short or that misses that standard. The second thing that you've done, because you've committed sin, verse 9, you are convicted by the law as transgressors. This is an official declaration. It's not just something you're doing, but this is a state of being that you have entered into. It's an objective reality. Because you've departed from God's standard in your actions, because you've shown partiality, because you have failed to love, you and I are now transgressors of God's law. You and I are law breakers. Now, if we're honest, most human beings don't think of themselves as law breakers. Most people would say, well, I'm no criminal. I try hard. I've done more good than bad. I'm generally a nice person. And we sort of think of sin, missing the mark here, as like eating and good works as exercise. And so if we, if we sin a little and we eat a little too much of that key lime pie, then we just go out and exercise, do some good works and make up for that sin. But the problem is that to be a transgressor of God's law, to break his law, is not a difficult status to attain. And that's what James explains in verses 10 and 11. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. So this is like a, a digression to explain verse 9 and what it means to be a transgressor. Verse 11, For he who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. 
So what he's doing here is warning his readers and us by extension. You can't show partiality. You can't act without love and imagine that you are good to go with God. The point is here, you can't pick and choose which of God's commands you will obey and which ones you won't. Man, I do this. Now, I don't have a list, and I, I don't think you do either. You know, on your in your day timer, maybe on your phone, here's the, here's the commands of God I'm going to obey, and here's the ones I'm not going to obey over here. On my whiteboard in my office, I actually have this list. No, it, none of us do that. That's not how we operate. But man, this is what we do. We don't actually say, I'm not obeying the Bible here. But we read, we read James 1.26 where it talks about being careful with our words and we find a workaround for it in our minds, you know? We think, well, yeah, but I'm a straight shooter. It's just who I am, you know? Of course everyone on Facebook needs to read my point of view. I got to put it out there. Or we read what Jesus says about material wealth and our heart's attachment to material wealth, and we sort of shrug it off. And I think when we do that, we have normalized the partitioning of God's word off into pieces, and we ignore the parts that we don't want, or that we don't appreciate, or that just seem a little too difficult for us. And verse 11 makes it clear that we can't do that because the law of God, it comes as one package unity. And it comes together in that unified whole because there is one law giver. It's a very personal thing. The command to love your neighbor as yourself and to not commit adultery, to not murder, those are not just rules written down on a page. They're not just recipes for a nice life or and these things happen to be ingredients in them that you can include or not include based on your taste and your preference that's not how scripture comes to us scripture comes to us as a from a person and when we discount his commands then what we do is we place ourselves above him and so what James is doing in verses 10 and 11 is he wants his readers to reckon with their own sin and their own partiality. He wants them to understand that this is no small matter. And when you enter into this, you have become a lawbreaker and you have offended the God of the universe. So don't shrug off his word and his commands. Now, having made that point... Now he's going to go back on the positive and instruct us in what to do in response to this in verses 12 and 13. Here are the positive exhortations toward wisdom and wholeness. But even in these positive exhortations, they come with a very clear warning to us. Look at verse 12. Here's the commands. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. I mean, look at those commands. Speak and act. This has been a theme in James's letter so far. Our speech and our actions. We have to be those who reflect Christ in our actions and our speech. 
And both of those areas have to be performed, entered into as one who understands what he says here in verse 12. Speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. When you speak, when you act, understand that in the future you will be held accountable for what you say and what you do. Now, what does that mean? What is he saying here? You're going to be judged by the law of liberty. What he's doing here is pointing to the standard by which we will be judged. The law of liberty. Of course, that's the Bible in in total. And the Bible, the scriptures, provide true freedom and true liberty for us. We've already talked about this in James 1.25. People often think of commands as something that is restrictive on us. But the Bible is given to us as the law of liberty, that which frees us to be who we were designed to be. So what is the standard here, the law of liberty, that James is saying we will be judged by or under? Paul works that out in Galatians 5. Let me read this to you. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The law of liberty is the standard or the law that calls us to sacrifice ourselves for the good of others. This is the goal. This is the standard. It's the law of love. It's this command, love your neighbor as yourself. And so to speak and to act as one who is accountable to the law of liberty is to use your freedom to serve others. It's to love and to sacrifice for those around you. So if you think of Jesus as the king and you and I have entered into his kingdom through salvation, then as kingdom citizens, this is the royal law for us. This is the summary of everything that we're responsible to. Sacrificial love of others. That's the standard by which we are held. So how can you tell if you're living this out? Look at verse 13. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. These are scary words. This is a warning for us. This gives us a very clear way to know whether we have been faithful to this royal law, whether we're living according to this royal law. The warning is that if you, if I, show partiality, if we show favoritism, if we don't show mercy to those around us, then we will not receive mercy on judgment day. That seems harsh. It sounds serious. And it is. And this is not the only place in Scripture that this is taught. Listen to the end of a parable in Matthew chapter 18. Then his master, speaking to his servant, summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? 
and in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Here's the point of what James is saying here. How can we, who claim to have received undeserved mercy and grace from God, that is supposed to be the theme of our song. That is the driving force in why we're here this morning. We are people who have received undeserved, unmerited kindness because we know we've broken God's law. We know we don't bring anything to the table. And James would say, how can we, who make that claim with our words, then go out into our relationships and withhold that mercy and that grace from those around us who are in need of it? How can we do that? When we live like that, when we're partial, when we use our own criteria to judge others, then we show that we really don't grasp the mercy of God. And I think that's the root issue here. We show that we have no idea what the gospel really means. We have no idea what has been done for us and how undeserving we are of God's grace and mercy. So I would say one of the surest signs that a person doesn't grasp the depths of their own sin, the reality of grace, is that that person treats others with contempt, with partiality, with pride, discrimination. I mean, it's like the flip side of what Jesus says in John 13. By this will all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. All men, flip side, all men will recognize the hypocrisy of your faith when you don't show mercy but continue to lack love. And that's why James ends the way he does in verse 13. This is a fitting conclusion for a passage that is very heavy and full of warnings to us. Look at verse 13. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And this is the bottom line for us. When we demonstrate mercy, it proves the reality of our faith in Christ. And ultimately, mercy will be what triumphs over judgment in the judgment day. Now, fighting this sin of partiality with the mercy and grace of God is exactly where we need to be as we're pursuing wisdom for wholeness. I want you to listen again as we end this morning to the very center of this book, James chapter 3, verses 13 to 18. This is why this series has the title that it does, Wisdom for Wholeness. And I want you to listen to the description of godly, heavenly wisdom and how that should define us here, right? And I'll close with this. Verse 13, who is wise and understanding among you by his good conduct let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, 
then peaceable, gentle, open to reason. I love that word there. It's one word in Greek, open to reason, easily convinced. That's literally what that means, easy to get along with. Continues, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial. There you go. The wisdom from above is impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And how do we pursue this wisdom from above? How do we grow in mercy? I mean, you, you may be sitting there thinking, good grief, I, I don't live out this royal law. I am often quick to contempt and full of pride and I'm harsh in my dealings with others. So how do I make progress in this? How do I grow in this? And it's what I said earlier in this. Go back to the love and mercy and grace of God demonstrated in the Lord Jesus Christ and live there. Learn that grace. Don't just be able to recite the Romans road and say, I know the gospel, but plumb the depths of what Christ has done for us and the mercy that he has shown us. And your heart will be changed and lifted up in love and affection to him. And that love and affection will flow out more naturally and more easily in your responses and your speech and your actions toward others. It's not just tighten your belt, get your shoelaces on good, Get ready to run as hard as you can. That's not what he's calling us to here. He's calling us to diving into the mercy and grace of God so that then we demonstrate that to others. Let's pray. Father, we, we need your mercy and grace. We need your kindness. We need to be familiar with it, to revel in the goodness that you have shown to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. And then, Lord, help us to rejoice in what you've done and help us at the same time to feel the pressure of what James is saying here. If we stand before you and have not demonstrated mercy to, to those around us, we will prove by that that our words were just that. They were nice words that were spoken. And you will say, depart from me for I never knew you because we didn't demonstrate mercy to others, because we didn't really understand and have received the grace and mercy that come from you. So help us to feel that warning in a deep way and help us to turn to you and to all that you've done for us in response. Thank you for who you are. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.